Thank you. My name is Mark, and I want to say good morning to all of you over in Venue as well, or joining us on Facebook Live. We are glad that you are part of this morning's service today. And we're in a series called Everyday Sacred, a verse-by-verse study of the New Testament letter of James. And today, we arrive at the final two verses. Two verses that actually form just one sentence. And yet, it is a powder keg because it speaks to a painful reality that uh, most of us have experienced. It's when someone that you dearly love wanders away from God's truth. Sometimes in the news, you hear someone uh, with some notability, uh, they announce that they are no longer a Christian or something like that. There's been a couple of those just this summer, one with a, a guy who's written a lot of worship songs, some of them that we've sung here. And it's always very, very sad, but what is even more painful is when something like this strikes closer to home, in your own family, or with a, a dear friend, someone you know, someone you maybe you've sat next to in church for many, many years. And it raises difficult questions because, you know, for time, perhaps even a very long time, from all appearances, that person shared the same faith you do, and yet now, not so much. Some will tell you, well, yeah, I still believe in Jesus, but their life tells a, a different story. Others, maybe their, their way of living has changed very little, and yet their view of Jesus, uh, the significance of his church, that has shifted radically. And it can play out in a myriad of different ways. And in 30 minutes, we're not going to be able to you know, cover all of that. But suffice it to say, if you're here today, someone that you deeply care about has wandered away from the Lord, I am confident that that, that fills you with a very deep and abiding concern. I've entitled this morning's message, Sacred Longing, because there is something very sacred about longing for someone who, again, has, has wandered away to, to return to Jesus, to, to embrace the, the faith that we've been given. James does not close with a, a typical ending. There's no final greetings. There's no benediction. Uh, that you see in so many other New Testament letters, and I think it is because James shares this very same sacred longing. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he says this. You can follow along as I read. My dear, or my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The end. There's no further development or explanation. Did he run out of ink or paper? And yet, if you think about it, if we've been paying attention, we realize that this has really been James's concern throughout the letter. It's just kind of summarize this very quickly, but chapter 1, he talks about how people who listen to God's Word but never actually do it are deceiving themselves. So, he, he urges them, 
Chapter 1, verse 21, to humbly accept the word planted in you, interesting use of words, planted in you, which can save you. Chapter 2, he writes, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And his point in this section is that true faith will always lead to a changed life. And if your faith, if it doesn't enliven, if it doesn't inform your behavior, he says your faith is dead. Now, this section of James is often misunderstood, and so if you weren't with us when we covered this section, I encourage you to go to our website, and you can watch this for free. It's called Living Faith, and give you a fuller treatment of that. But in chapter 3, you ever really want to know what's going on in your heart? Well, he says, pay attention to what's rolling off your tongue, because out of the mouth, those words come from deep, into our, deep in our heart. And so in verse 10, he says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And James admits that we all kind of stumble. We're not perfect in this way, but on balance, a changed heart is increasingly humble it's, it's sincere, merciful, peace-loving, wise, and these things will be reflected in our speech. Chapter 4, James warns those who are in love with the things of the world and also uh, those who are proud and, and arrogant. He's, he's kind of singling them out, and he's calling them to repentance, and he assures them. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So again, he's, he has his eye on folks that are in the church, but he's got a deep concern for them. And so finally, chapter 5, he, he voices it again for people who might wander from the truth, which is really not some you know, narrow point of doctrine. This is James' kind of shorthand for the gospel, for this, the core of the Christian proclamation. And these people, again, are within the scope of his audience. He says they're, they're among you. And so it's not only that original audience, but by extension, uh, it's, it's anyone who has been exposed to, who understands the basic proclamation of the Christian faith, which has been summarized perhaps in no better place than in John 3.16. It's why it's so popular. But just, just so that we're all very clear here, the central claim of Christianity is that God so loved the world, a world where we have all wandered away from Him, but He loves us so much that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a cross on behalf of our sins so that we would be completely forgiven, that all of the punishment, all of the guilt would fall upon him so that whoever believes in him, placing their faith in what he's done, their trust in that, in his life, his death, his resurrection, because of that, as a result, you will not perish but have eternal life. This is the truth of the gospel. And if you hear nothing else this morning, Hear this, and I pray that you will embrace it if you never have before, because this is God's gift to us. It's His gift, and yet not all receive it. If you're taking notes this morning, circle those words wanders and wandering 
James uses a word here that's in the language he's writing in, the, the Greek that he's writing in. It appears 37 times in the New Testament, and it has to do with being led astray, deceived, to be in error in one's thinking and perspective. And in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used exactly the same way. In fact, a familiar example is in Isaiah 53, 6, where it appears two times when it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. There it is. Each of us has turned, that's the second occasion, to our own way. In other words, we've wandered. Now, how do sheep wander astray? One step at a time, right? <laughs> it's not that complicated. <laughs> they start nibbling here, and then they nibble there, and there, and nibble, and nibble, and nibble, and nibble, and eventually they've left the flock. A while ago, I told a story about one day I'm driving out of my driveway, stopped and looked to see if there's a car coming up the street. There's no car coming up the street, but there's this sheep, a magnificent sheep trotting up the street. I have to yield for it or something like that. And this is kind of life in Corlitas. And so I see right behind the sheep, there's one of my neighbors from down the street. He's got this long leash in his hand, and he's chasing after the sheep. He's, he tends to wrap it around the sheep's neck, uh, but the sheep is having nothing to do with the leash, and it's clear that it's far quicker than this neighbor of mine. And so I think, well, that's not going to work. So I will bribe it. So I park my truck, and I run to the house, grab a carrot out of the fridge, come back out, and I dangle it in front of the sheep's face. And the sheep looks at me like, yeah, buddy, I like those about as much as you do. And so as it turns out, the sheep could not be bribed nor could be forced into following us back to its home. And sometimes when we're trying to persuade someone back to the truth of the gospel, uh, we respond in ways that aren't terribly successful either. In fact, allow me to mention four of them. And by the way, these responses don't really work but that does not keep us from trying them anyway. And the first one, I'm going to camp out on this one the most, this is anxiety. Anxiety. It's where it begins. You know, we worry over the person who's wandering, and it's totally understandable. I mean, this is not a welcome development in their lives. It is not a good direction because, after all, James says in verse 20, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, on one hand, that's hopeful, that's motivating for us to be reaching out, but on the other hand, it's, it's sobering because it raises the question in our minds, well, you know, what if they don't turn around? You know, do they, do they lose their salvation? Well, that's not really the, the issue that's being addressed in this passage, and I'll tell you why. First of all, the through line of James, as well as in the Gospels, which, which he refers to often is that there are some who, who are, appear to be a part of the Lord's flock, and yet it turns out they aren't really that way. In fact, if you read Matthew 13, the entire chapter is about that issue with the sower and the seed, or, or the weed and the tares, or the catch where some of the fish are in and some of them are out. This is, a, this is an abiding concern for the Lord. He talks about it often, and here his half-brother James is doing the same thing. Not only that, but notice that, that James says, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul. This is significant because in the New Testament, you will never find the word sinner as a reference for someone who is truly saved. 
who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, surprisingly, in Christ, we're called saints. And it really comes down to where you draw your life. Ultimately, if your life is is in your sin, then Scripture calls you a sinner. But if your life is in Christ, then amazingly, you're called a saint by His Word even though you struggle with sin. But that's why we call His grace so amazing, because He he overlooks that because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross. So here in verse 20, where it says that that bringing this person back will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sin, He's really describing that moment when they, they truly come to faith for the first time. Even though maybe they've been around the church for a long time or something like that, they are coming to faith in this moment, which means their soul is being saved and their sins, as, as, as many as they are, are being fully covered. That's the description of all of us who have come to faith in Christ. Your soul has been saved. Your, your, your multitude of sins are covered. In my case, a great multitude has been covered up. But again, the sad fact is this, that... Something with the human mind, we're able to compartmentalize where, where we might accept this as a, you know, propositionally, give a mental assent to it, go, yeah, I don't have any difficulty with that. And yet, uh, even we sing songs and, and, and listen to sermons, but it, it never, for some reason, there's a disconnect. It never goes deeper. It doesn't become personal or central to one's life. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, James says ever so bluntly, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In a context, he's saying, okay, congratulations, you're not a pagan because, again, they were surrounded by pagans. But he's saying, you know, it's one thing to know about God, to even have a certain set of theological beliefs about God. But he's going, you know what, the demons have that. (laughs) They have a lot more. They know more than you do. But it is another thing to place your faith and your trust in God, and specifically as He is revealed, embodied in Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example, and not a terribly positive one. Thomas Jefferson admired Jesus. He read the New Testament. He probably read it more than most of us. He liked what Jesus had to say about ethical issues. He liked the the virtuous life that he he believed that Jesus lived. But the miracle stuff, you know, him healing people, giving sight to the blind, commanding the wind and the waves, all that supernatural stuff, Jefferson thought that was totally bogus. It was irrational. And so in response, he literally cut those sections out of the New Testament. I mean, here's, here's a picture of his actual Bible on screen. If you go to the Smithsonian, you can see this for yourself. And truth be told, you know, he's not the only one who's ever, you know, picks and choose what they, choose, what they want to believe about Jesus, right? He just happens to be a little bit more honest about it. And if I was his friend, and if I was living in that time, you know, I might, I might be filled with a lot of worry for him going, you know, you know, Tom, I don't know that that's really the best approach to Scripture. So maybe would you put down your razor blade or your scissors and, and just hear me out. I'm so worried about you. Would you 
you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I think if I did that, he'd probably be annoyed, right? He'd be like, Mark, worry about yourself. Because the truth is, you're probably not going to be able to worry someone to Jesus. You know, okay, I'll receive Jesus because I'm tired of seeing you worry. It just doesn't work. So, next response that also is not terribly successful is anger. (laughs) Why worry when you can just get mad, right? And I have to admit, this is where I struggle most. This is kind of my default response uh, in situations like this. In fact, just recently, I, I realized it was painfully clear that I needed to repent of anger that I was holding towards another person. Uh, and uh, it was because this person wasn't acting terribly Christ-like, uh, and so you could even say that it was a righteous anger. Problem is, it wasn't helping. It did not move the needle one bit. And so I'd say, Lord, this is, this is your deal. I, I just have to let this go. And perhaps there's someone in your life, you know, maybe you, you raised them one way, they're living another way. Or they're a friend, there's someone you really love, but they're going down a destructive path, and it's so frustrating, it can get aggravating because you see the pain and the problems that it's producing, but, you know, your anger over that situation, or perhaps even more so, the people that are influencing their choices, oh, man. It's understandable, but it's probably not helpful. And so, anxiety, anger, those don't work. Third one, not much better either, because eventually we kind of, this stuff kind of weighs on us and we respond with uh, angst. You know, we're, we're just sad over the situation. I have a friend I know through Mount Hermon, her name is Liz Hammer. And this summer, Liz did a seminar every week entitled Our Wandering Ones, and it's a discussion about one of her grown sons who has wandered away from the faith of his upbringing and his family. And by the way, Liz shares this uh, completely with her son's permission and blessing. But one of the things that Liz says, and I credit her for some of my thoughts today, but she makes an excellent point when she says, despite this deep longing that I have, and you can imagine a mother's heart for her son, she just wants the best for him. But she says, despite of that, I came to the realization that even in this season of life, God still wants me to have joy. He still wants me to have peace. I mean, after all, joy and peace are not simply reserved for the times in life when everything's just going perfect, right? And so living in this perpetual state of angst, that's not the answer either. And neither is this fourth response which is apathy. You know, we just throw up our hands and just give up all hope for our wandering ones to ever return. And you know what that's really saying? If you think about it, when, when, when we kind of just, you know, say, all right, I'm just going to, I'm not going to care anymore. We're saying we already know how the story ends, is what we're saying. You know, I've already drawn the final conclusion in this person's life. But you know what? You might agree with me. Last time I checked on this, that type of knowledge is way above our pay grade. You know what I'm saying? And so if none of these responses actually work, if they're not productive, okay, how are we called to respond? You know, help us out here, Lord. Well, this week, James doesn't give us any type of, like, further words here. And so I I look to other passages of Scripture, and 
And the Lord brought me to four scriptures that, uh, you know, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not everything there is to say about it. It's not a formula or ironclad guarantee, but I think these are four things that if we apply, you won't be sorry. I don't think you can go wrong with any one of these, and I, and I encourage you to apply all four of them. And the first way we're called to respond when someone is wandering away from the Lord is to respond gently. Respond gently. Yet we woo people back to Jesus. We do not boo them back to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes what passes for Christian radio or, or TV or even Sunday sermons really boils down to we're just booing these people. You know, you're a terrible person. Boo. You're not making good choices. Boo. Oh, you're running around with that group. Boo, boo. And it's like, how persuasive is that? In Galatians Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person what? Let me hear you, church. Gently. Gently. Now, to be clear, here in Galatians, Paul is talking about someone uh, who has faltered in their faith, been caught in a particular sin. They're not necessarily outside the fold. But the same principle allows it. And by, we're not really called the judge who's in and out of the fold anyway. But he says, respond with, with gentleness. Don't clobber them. Love them. And the word that, that he uses there, restore, you see that word in Matthew 4 when Jesus sees James and John mending their nets? That's the word restore. They are mending them, restoring them to full function. It was also used as a medical term when, when someone would set a bone or, or put a Put, it, put your, your bone back in joint. And I don't know about you, but, you know, whatever the doctor has to do to restore my health, I'm like, just do it gently, okay, please? <laughs> I mean, do what you got to do, but, but don't hurt me any more than you have to. And so we respond gently, and secondly, we respond humbly. Humbly, as in there, but, but, but for the grace of God, there go I, that kind of humility. And in Galatians 6, verse 1 continues, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. And it's so subtle because, you know, we begin with the best of intentions, but when we're met with defensiveness or indifference or just flat-out rejection, after a while, eventually, we can start to feel, well, maybe just a little bit superior, you know what I mean? Why do you have to be so hard-headed? I'm just trying to bring you to Jesus. Like I am so close to. Valerie was telling a few of us in the office this last week, funny story. Uh, (laughs) Seems that whenever she's out in town, uh, someone might like recognize her from the church, but they don't know her name. And so more than once, someone has said to her, hey, you're that church lady. (laughs) Look, mommy, it's the church lady. So you should keep doing that. Just keep that up. I think that's, that's good. All right. Where are we? Watch yourself. Watch myself. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. We respond gently, humbly, and third, 
we respond prayerfully. Prayerfully. You know, when we bring our burden for someone else to the Lord in prayer, uh, we're not just bringing words, we're bringing ourselves, aren't we? We're bringing our whole beings into that conversation. Again, that's a, that's a sacred thing, but I have found over the course of time that when I'm, I'm praying for someone who may be straying from the Lord, the Lord doesn't allow me to just make it about them. He always has a way of turning it back around, and, and I find myself feeling obligated to pray for myself in the same ways I'm praying for them. You with me here? So it's like, you know, Lord, please soften this person's heart. Oh, and... Soften mine too. Or Lord, even if you have to chasten this person, you have to make them uncomfortable in, in order to motivate them to come back to you, do the same in my life, Lord, for the things that I need to repent of as well. David prays in Psalm 26, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. And this is really James in a nutshell. He is calling us to examine our lives. But with this issue of prayer, you know, most of us know that the lowest point in Peter's life was the the night that he denied Jesus three times. The night that Jesus is arrested, he's about to be crucified, and here's this, this beloved, you know, loyal disciple saying, I never knew the man. And again, he's just, it's just the, the bottom of the barrel in Peter's life. But we, we know that story well. One of the things that gets skipped over a lot is what Jesus says to Peter right before this all goes down. And I, I, this is just, I love this. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, as he was also called, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Again, I find this so personally encouraging. And it is a sacred thing, again, to follow Jesus in prayer on behalf of other people, praying that their faith will ultimately not fail, praying that after they have wandered, that they will return. And in fact, they will return with a, with a love for Jesus that, that inspires and strengthens other people. And so when you're, you're tempted to give up on that person, or you're frustrated, or you're just kind of at your wit's end, pray. Pray for them. As James reminds us, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you believe that, church? Pray for those wandering ones in your own life. And along these lines, the fourth way to to reach out, to respond, is expectantly. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories that are really Uh, a window into his heart, how he feels about those who have wandered away or are lost. Uh, First, there's the story of a shepherd who leaves 99 of his sheep to go and find and rescue the one sheep, right? And then there's a story of a woman who loses a coin and she will not stop looking for it until she finds it. The third story is about the so-called prodigal son. And this young man, he runs far, far away from his father, And yet, every day, 
Even though this, this, this young man, he has plunged into the deep end of sin and selfish living, every single day his father is scanning the horizon, expecting that maybe today will be the day that I see my boy coming home. And how do I know this? Because if you know the story, it doesn't exactly tell it that way. Or does it? Because Jesus says, when the son finally decides to return, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. That dad was just looking, well, just at the, the limits of his vision. Someday I'm going to see my boy coming home. That's God's heart on display. That's how God feels about those who say, you know, thanks, God, but no thanks. Or, yeah, you know, Jesus, I tried that, didn't really work for me. The point is, if God doesn't give up, neither should his church. Neither should we. This past May, a woman named Amanda Eller got lost while hiking in a very remote area of Maui. You may recall this story. She was found alive after 17 days. What made all the difference? Well, watch this. I'm just a girl that got lost in the woods, and you guys, like, showed up hard. They called her rescue a miracle. On Monday, they treated her like a hero. I just have so much gratitude and thanks for, like, everybody showing up with the biggest hearts and the biggest generosities. Those volunteers kept showing up, some climbing, some repelling, some flying drones, even when police called off the search after just three days. She just went through the 17-day survivor ordeal, and she's looking... Unbelievable. Eller's good friend Javier Cantalopes last saw her on Friday when he was part of the team that spotted her from the air and then rescued her from a jungle waterfall. We can celebrate. She's like, you never gave up on me. I was like, I was going to search for you for the rest of my life. These guys were not going to give up on me. Thank God. Thank God indeed. Right? They just wouldn't give up. And as I say this, I'm well aware that the person that you're thinking of that perhaps has wandered away, it's quite possible they don't want to be found. Maybe they've made that abundantly clear, which is why it's all the more important for us not to give up on them. I included the message paraphrase of today's passage today because I think it just nails the heart of what James is saying in this text when it says, my dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. Well, in a moment, I'm going to invite all of us who have a burden for someone in our lives to bring that person before the Lord in prayer. Uh, and we're going to ask that God would do a remarkable work, that He would do a miracle in their lives. We're going to have an opportunity to do that. But before we do, it's possible that in a group this size, that the person that you've been thinking about, the one who's been wandering away from the Lord, isn't out there. It's right here. It's you. Because there's something that has driven a wedge between you and Jesus. Uh, it's, it's fear. 
It's shame. It's disappointment. It's, it's pain. It's doubts about something, an unresolved question or something like that. It may even be, you know, the issue of control. Who, who ultimately gets to have control over my life? But whatever it is, listen to me, whatever it is, it has been deceiving you. It has been leading you astray. It has been slowly convincing you the more you nibble on it that there's some kind of life for you out there away from Jesus. But in truth, there is no life outside of Jesus. He is the author of life. He is the source of life. Apart from Him, there are only dead ends. And so I implore you to come back to Jesus. Remember that lost sheep that I mentioned earlier this morning? As it turned out, the leash wasn't going to make it come back. The carrot wasn't going to make it come back. What made the difference was actually my neighbor Lisa, who happened to know a thing or two about sheep. Because when she saw what, what was going on, she came out of her house and she simply called it. She says, hey there, sweetheart. How are you? And the sheep just perks up like this, like it's in this, she casts a spell on it, and it just trots right over to her side like they're best friends. And I'm stunned by this, holding my stupid carrot in my hand. It's just, you're lost. Come with me. And they just go walking down the road, the sheep following her voice all the way home. Is it possible you are hearing the voice of the Lord this morning? If so, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. So, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And if not for yourself, then from a dear one, for a dear one in your life, who needs to hear the voice of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people today, as your church. And Lord, this is a, this is a heavy subject. Um, lives are on the light. Souls. And so, Lord, as your people, we come before you and we, we, we agree with your heart for, for these folks. We know you love them more than we can even begin to imagine. You love them so much, you, you gave them your son. But for whatever reason, um, that, that, that hasn't lodged in their heart in a, a lasting way. And, and, and church, if you're thinking of someone right now that, that you have a burden for, I'm just going to encourage you with our eyes closed, but I'm just, as a show of faith, will you just put your hand up as if to say, Lord Jesus, I am, I am holding this person up to you right now, and I'm asking you to do a strong work in their life. I'm asking you to, to, to do a miracle. I'm asking you that I will live to see the day when, when like Amanda, Amanda's friends, we can say, let's celebrate we found her. Or like the, the father of the prodigal son will say, let's throw a party because my son who was lost has returned. If that's you, just 
Lord, we, we hold these people before you and we ask that you would intervene in their lives. You would, you would soften your hearts even as we acknowledge our hearts need to, to be softened too. And maybe if, if the person that needs to be held up to the Lord is you, then I invite you to put your hand up as well as if to say, Lord Jesus, I, will you take my hand? Will you lead me from this point forward? I, I admit I have wandered from you. I have strayed. I've, I've been living in lies. And yet, Lord, today I hear your voice. I thank you you died on the cross for me. I thank you that my sins were nailed there with you, upon you, and that I can walk in freedom of your forgiveness and your grace. And so I want to walk in that all the days of my life. I want to follow you, Lord, from this point on. If that's you, just hold your hand up. And Lord Jesus, we hold ourselves up to you. We hold our loved ones up to you. We ask, Lord, again, that you would work powerful, powerfully in all of these situations. We thank you that you hear us, Lord. And that we know your heart. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said,